Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. On today's show, we'll be joined by Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, a professor of political science and policy at George Mason University and a global fellow of the Latin American program at the Wilson Center, where she studies security at the U.S.-Mexico border. Horrific stories have flooded the news and social media in recent weeks about the Trump administration's former policy to separate families at the border and how that's led to more than 2,000 children being taken from their parents. Now whole families are being detained. Much has been discussed around the private facilities where individuals, including minors who cross the border, are housed, which includes large tents and makeshift cages inside of warehouses. We'll discuss another private industry that's working with the government to carry out its immigration policies, the tech industry. We'll look at the billion-dollar contracts that have been awarded to build a so-called virtual border wall between Mexico and the United States, and what such a wall might look like. We also have a second interview for you on today's show. We'll be joined later by Brian Brackeen, CEO of a face recognition company called Kairos. Kairos provides face recognition technology to businesses, but Brackeen warns that putting the same kind of software and data in the hands of law enforcement is a very bad idea. We'll ask him why that is and what he sees as the more appropriate uses for a controversial cutting-edge technology. All right, welcome to the show. We have a special episode this week. In lieu of our normal discussion of the week's news, we have a pair of interviews with expert guests on related themes. Our interview with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera was recorded on June 26th, and our interview with Brian Brackeen was recorded on July 3rd. We've combined both of these interviews about the ever-changing landscape of digital surveillance into one show for y'all. So without further ado, here's our first guest. Our guest today is Dr. Guadalupe Correra Cabrera, a professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a global fellow of the Latin American program at the Wilson Center. Her areas of expertise are U.S.-Mexico relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking across the U.S.-Mexico border. Her newest book, which came out last year, is titled Losetas Incorporated, Criminal Corporations, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. Dr. Correra Cabrera, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start with a little background on my question. Um, while Trump is still pushing for his border wall it, admit, amidst the you know immigration uh, crisis, the humanitarian emergency that's happening right now, for decades, the U.S. has actually dreamed of and tried to build a kind of virtual wall at the border. There was a multi-billion dollar contract with Boeing in 2006 to build 1,800 towers along the Mexican and Canadian borders. Uh, this was part of the Secure Border Initiative. That contract was canned, I believe, in 2011 for being unsuccessful. In 2014, Arizona Border Surveillance Technology Plan was issued. The Israeli company Elbit was commissioned to build a network of surveillance towers. I think for like 145 million, 43 towers were built, Bloomberg reported by that initiative. There's 12,000 underground motion sensors, as well as an array of high-definition cameras, predator drones, blimps, towers, stretching across the 2,000 miles of land that make up the U.S.-Mexico border. 
I guess I'm just curious, why do we need all of this tech? I mean, we have, I think, something like 20,000 people working for uh, Border Patrol, uh, guarding the border. Um, what is the, what is this tech trying to solve? It's a very interesting question. Uh, I am not sure. I'm not sure. Um, it's very difficult to completely um, close the water, to shut the water. It's almost impossible for many reasons. Um, of course, there's an allegation that more surveillance and virtual and material walls and all these technology will solve the problem and that would help um, the Customs and Border Protection to to prevent more people from from crossing the border and drugs and all that. But in reality, who's been, I mean, we have to ask who's benefiting from 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 this technology, these you know walls that are going to be built, because you know as we will as we have known, the the number of Border Patrol agents has doubled in the in the past few years, and also uh, the technology that has been that has been in, uh, uh, put. To, to protect certain parts of the border and people are still arriving and smugglers are getting much more, you know, creative and people don't necessarily need to cross through the border, right? They can do it by sea, they can do it by tunnels or they can do it through corrupt networks on both sides of the border. So I am not sure uh, how much this is going to help to prevent people from crossing the border. But uh, and, and on the other, I mean, there's another thing that we need to consider, mm -hmm. that the number of apprehensions in the last few years, in the last two decades, have been uh, decreasing. It's, it's interesting uh, that the perception, hmm. or at least the, the discourse of the current administration is that we need to protect the border. People are, this is, this is a mess. I lived, in the, I lived at the border for eight years, and that was not a crisis. We didn't have a migration crisis as the crisis that it's perceived in Washington. So to, to respond to your question, I am not sure why, need, why we really need this. Um, if we want to prevent people from coming, it's, 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 it's more, you know, uh, we would save a lot of money uh, addressing the, the, the roots of the problem. And all this money is, is gonna be benefiting the contractors more than anybody else. So April mentioned a few of the technologies that are being used on the border. What are you aware of in terms of the role that tech is playing right now in the uh, the border policy of the United States? Well, tech is playing an important role. We see like the number of drones have increased. Of course, the fence includes cameras and includes technology to prevent people from from crossing or helping the border patrol to, um, I mean, to to do their work through the installation of cameras uh, mainly. Right, uh, that it's this is added to the fence. Also, um, also another type of technology that we need to consider is all the all all these systems that are utilized. To, to conduct the surveillance of the people that are crossing um, each day the border, right? All the fingerprints, the, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the way to identify the, the different people that are crossing through the formal checkpoints. And so I, I want to talk about that because you said that, you know, you're talking about the people that live on the border. What does this, you know, surveillance mean for the communities that, that live there? I mean, are they essentially in a surveillance state? Because it, it seems like you said there's, there's you know, no real way to um, really stop people from crossing, even with a lot of surveillance. So, you know, what is, what is it like for the people that have to live with that? 
That's a very important question, and this is what we have to consider as well. Uh, border communities, people who live at the border, are not going to be able to, to be, I mean, to to have their privacy. You know, the right to privacy is not going to be respected if if these cameras, if all this technology is utilized to to see who's coming. This is going to be utilized as as a way to, um, I mean, to see what the people are, you know, who who are living there, what are what are they doing? Um, you know, this is this is a very big problem uh, for the community who live there for the people the people are going to be watched all the time they will not be able to to conduct their their normal activities to do their work um, in privacy and that's a fundamental right that's going to be violated by all these surveillance and this is something that we really need to consider what kind of country um, we want to have what kind of country the United States is going to become with with all this surveillance allegedly to to protect pe- uh, the country from 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 people and drugs from coming. It's going to be also going to affect uh, the, the the citizens of the United States who live at the border and the communities are not small. Right. And Representative Heard from Texas uh, has been saying, you know, uh, pushing for a virtual wall, right, which we talked about at the beginning, and instead of, uh, you know, President Trump's, or maybe in addition to or instead of Trump's, you know, actual wall that he's he's trying to build. Um, but that would probably just mean, you know, even more surveillance for those border communities. Do you know anything about where this data goes once it's collected? Is, is it is it run, is it uh, owned by Department of Homeland Security? Yes, this is what I, this is what I, this is what I understand that the Department of Homeland Security finally is the one that, I mean, this is, this is the institution that's managing all this information. There is also inter-institutional cooperation and probably other, I mean, definitely other agencies are going to cooperate, the DEA, the FBI, I mean, the Department of Justice is going to also going to want to play a, a role here. We're not talking only about immigration, but we're also talking about drugs and arms. Mm-hmm. We're talking about different devices, right? So it's kind of um, difficult to, uh, I mean, to with 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 a lot of detail to say who's going to manage what, but this information needs to be shared uh, among the agencies. Even like, for example, the National Guard is uh, it's going to be used and it has been utilized to supposedly protect the border from immigrant from from immigrants from coming. So, I mean, we have also the department the defense department being involved to some extent. So, this information is going to be shared. Right. But then, you know, once you have this kind of dragnet surveillance or surveillance over an entire area, you're going to be collecting data on people that did nothing wrong, like people that just live at the border. And then that data, you know, could be held by Department of Homeland Security, like in a fusion center and could be accessed by local police departments. And once you have a database of people, uh, whether or not they did anything wrong or not, they're much more susceptible to being, you know, profiled by police in the future or something like that. It seems like it can kind of create a cycle of criminality for people that did nothing wrong that just live at the border. That's exactly right. And I forgot to say, I mean, forgot to mention not only interagency, but uh, but among the different levels of government, right? This, lo- local police are going to be able to access that, I mean, that information. And this is mainly my concern with all this technology, with all the surveillance that's going to be conducted at the border. It's going to be really affecting the privacy rights of, of border communities, of the people who live at the border. It seems like this is always going to be kind of a game of cat and mouse, right? So as soon as you build the surveillance technology, uh, I'm sure people who are crossing the border will find a way to circumvent it, right? This is what they do. And so then you have to build it again or reinstall it again. And it just seems like it's an on-ending pile-on or snowball of spending when it comes to securing the border. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's what I wanted to say in the beginning. And and it is and, and the question is, who are you gonna benefit in the end? These companies um, that are that are gonna be winning the contracts and and what is gonna be like the real uh, benefit of building the wall, or what? I mean, what is what is going to be doing, right? And the United States already has a problem uh, with with undocumented immigration already in the country. And yeah, we mentioned it can be tunnels, or 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 people can circumvent all this technology in different ways. I mean, they can come by sea now. Um, they're gonna. I mean, if if works are going, if works exist. If people are provided with a job when they enter, once they enter the United States, they're going to continue entering. There, there, there are pull factors that are very, very relevant. Um, and one, the, the biggest pull factor um, is, is represented by the by the jobs that are that are offered to these people, right? So if you really want to, if you really want to address this issue, we have probably to address this issue through the through the demand for 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 labor, right? not for the supply mm. of labor from that side and criminalize, you know, these people and spend a lot of money that's going to benefit only a few, a few, uh, a few companies. That's, that's where these things don't make a lot of sense to me. And the rhetoric is, is very, you know, it's going to promote an inequality and, and the benefit only of, of, of a bunch of corporate groups. Are there any upsides to the use of technology that you see? I mean, are there any technologies that you've heard of proposed for for use along the border in some way that you are actually hopeful about or or see any reason for optimism? Uh, well, I this is a this is also a very difficult question. Um uh, as I mentioned, it's to be technology that's 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 not so um, expensive and would serve the purposes. Uh, the utilization of drones with cameras probably, you know, would not affect so much, but it's also costly, right? I I think that that the conditions in the countries of origin need to change, and there need to be a commitment um, and an agreement between the countries of Mexico, Central America, the United States, a commitment, a compromise, and and the conditions in the countries need to be addressed. Also, with regards to the labor market in the United States, if you want to address this issue, you don't have to do it with technology, but maybe, you know, uh, unmanned airplanes and, yeah, probably some technology. But at the same time, we have already talked about the ineffectiveness in the end if you don't address the root causes of, of this issue. Right. So, well, it's it's difficult to say what is what is the technology that's going to be better, right? That we need to leave it to the engineers that is that are working with, with with Donald Trump and with the current administration and that have been working in the past administrations. Not only you know this administration, but that's considered that during the Obama years and the Bush years, this has been growing. This has been growing exponentially, and and this is not a new era. Uh, this is just a continuation of an era of technology of fencing of 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 contractors that are that are getting better reach because of all these. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be with you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Brian Brackeen, CEO of Kairos, which is a facial recognition company. We talked to him about the future of the technology and his critique of how it's used in law enforcement.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. Our guest today is Brian Brackeen. He's the CEO of Kairos, a Miami-based artificial intelligence company specializing in face recognition. Before founding Kairos, Brian worked as a senior project manager for Apple, and before that, at IBM. In addition to his work at Kairos, Brian lectures around the world on entrepreneurship, code, the digital economy, and he participates in mentorship programs for organizations like Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code, and the School District of Miami. Brian recently wrote an op-ed for the tech site TechCrunch that was widely shared in tech circles. The headline was, Facial Recognition Software is Not Ready for Use by Law Enforcement. Brian, welcome to If Then. Thanks for having me here. All right, so I want to get into this op-ed you wrote, but first, can you just tell us briefly what exactly face recognition is and how it works? Face recognition is a newer technology that allows computers to see and understand people around them. So just like you and me when we are kids, we were born not knowing anyone. And then as time goes on, we learn who our parents are, who our uh, sisters and brothers are, who our friends are. Facial recognition works the exact same way, but at scale. Uh, it can find one person in millions in just milliseconds. All right. And in order to do that, it needs to collect lots of data on people's faces, right? So it can pick out the, the identifying patterns in their facial features and then, and then find a match when it sees them again? Exactly correct. And just like uh, people, the more people it sees, the more it learns. Uh, some of the algorithms have only been trained on certain sets of people or certain groups, and therefore it doesn't know as much about other groups of people, women, minorities, you name it. Right. And so we've seen this uh, demonstrated in in various circumstances where uh, facial recognition software is very good at identifying a white face. But when it comes to uh, people with different skin color, that's 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 not as light. Uh, They haven't been as successful at finding a correct match. Right. That is exactly correct. What happens is these things are born in university and uh, oftentimes, particularly in America, universities are of much larger white populations than the general public. And so it gets used to seeing white males, uh, particularly in university, and has a hard time identifying other folks in the real world. All right. So can you tell us why you make the argument that face recognition technology is not ready for use by law enforcement? Uh, Obviously, you're in the business of using face recognition technology, uh, but why is it that you think it could be particularly problematic for police to use it or for surveillance agencies to use it? Or is particularly problematic because they already are using it. So (laughs) (laughs) both are true. So, yeah, one of the one of the concerns we have is it's kind of equal treatment across groups. So 
we I'll start by saying, you know, we love facial recognition. That's what we do for a living. We use it for business use cases, things like cruise lines, things like theme parks, things like blockchain transactions. When, when Kairos may be wrong about uh, someone, it means maybe they don't see their picture on a cruise or it means maybe they are asked a second time to log into their phone. Uh, when law enforcement gets it wrong, we're talking about people's you know, lives, their civil liberties, their freedoms, even their life is at stake. And when you have a situation where certain groups have a more likely chance to either be false positively selected or false negatively selected, you've got a, a, a real issue there. Uh, the the analogous I'd like to analogy I like to give is, let's say you had tasers for a police department. Um, it would be patently ridiculous for me to say, okay, for this tool, the taser, it works really, really well on this group of folks, but it doesn't work work really well on this group of folks, right? We wouldn't accept that, and so I don't know why we would accept uh, facial recognition not working for different groups in uh, police and law enforcement as well. If the data were better, and if the technology worked equally well on all different groups of people, would you then support the use of face recognition technology by law enforcement agencies? And I want to I back that question up with a specific example. Um, recently, there was the shooting in a newsroom in Annapolis, Maryland, and police actually are said to have used a face recognition database that Maryland has at the state level to quickly identify the, the suspect in that shooting. That would seem to people like a good thing, uh, but but what do you think? I mean, is is there potential for use of face recognition tech by law enforcement, or do you think it, it's it's never going to be a good idea? Uh, you know, I'm definitely a glass half full person, so I def I hope that it will be a good idea in the future when the system works equally across everyone. Uh, I, I'd be all for some of these use cases. It won't be right for Kairos, but it will be right for others, and and I totally accept that. I don't think that reality exists uh, right now. And there's also a lack of regulation uh, to make sure there's oversight as well in some of these systems. The, the example you gave in Maryland, which is super tragic, and obviously a, we would all consider a good use of facial recognition, but it's all in how you phrase it. If you said to folks, hey, we're going to use facial recognition to find this one bad guy, absolutely, sounds good. If you also said to folks, hey, we're going to comb through every driver's license photo you've ever taken, to try to find a bad guy, then maybe they wouldn't feel the same way. Uh, both of those things are true. And I think we need to, just as a society, come to grips with that, consider it, have legislation around it, and then it'll be fine. It's not just, though, about uh, whether or not it, it works. Well, you mentioned that we need to have good uh, regulation around these technologies, because you mentioned in your op-ed that that this uh, technology could also be used to violate privacy. So, for instance, if people are are exercising their First Amendment rights at a protest uh, and, and they are certainly allowed to do so, you know, law enforcement can use this technology broadly to identify people who aren't doing anything wrong and uh, have no reason to uh, stoke suspicions of law enforcement and yet are you know, searched for as, as if they are a suspicious character. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, and we, we see this already in, in other countries that don't have the same kind of civil liberties and protections that we do in America. So uh, we've heard of uh, the Iranians, the Chinese using these tools to figure out who are the folks at pro-democracy rallies. Uh, we've also seen China using it to make sure that certain ethnic, ethnic minorities, Muslim minorities, stay in one part of the country and don't leave and go to other parts of the country. And when anyone from that town goes to different parts of the country, they're quickly, they're, the cameras quickly alert the police. They're, they're grabbed and moved back to that, uh, that one town. 
Now, these are things that here in the U.S. we would we certainly wouldn't accept, and these are the, the kind of slippery slope that we're trying to keep from happening. Now, one thing that I'm very aware of is that if data is being collected by a corporation, there is not a small chance that the government might somehow try to access that data. And so, you know, whether or not we're opposed to, to government um, use of this technology, it seems like it's going to be hard to uh, avoid potential civil liberties violations if the technology just exists in the world. Um, and I want to get into the corporate uses a bit in this in a second, but um, what are your thoughts on on just kind of the databases or or the um, the fact that you know if corporations use it, then governments might also tap it? Yeah. So in in our case, in Facebook's case, in any kind of private company's case, uh, the government can send something called a national security letter, which says we're right. looking for information about this particular individual. Um, what I think is, uh, I guess, a little bit less less concerning about that is. There is now, for whatever reason, you would assume probable cause, you would hope. Um, there is also an opportunity, though it's a closed proceeding, to uh, to fight that national security letter and then go see a, a FISA court or a secret court. Um, and, and there's some due process uh, there. Right. In the, in the other example, in the police example, you simply already have all the driver's license information. You have all the driver's license photos, all the passport photos. You could put a camera right on you know, Main Street in any town, and you could uh, track anyone in the entire town that way. Uh, we feel like that's inappropriate. Retail shops are already using facial recognition technology to find and repeat customers and identify shoplifters. You know, the FBI already has a facial recognition database that's said to, you know, have access to more than 400 million images. Uh, You know, you might have seen the study from Georgetown Law last year that said about half of all American adults are in at least one law enforcement database. It seems like, yes, there are a lot of ways this can go wrong. Is there any way to walk back, though, the fact that we are already see this technology uh, being used uh, in, in such a full way? It, it seems like it's already out there. Uh, it, it's going to be hard to, to, to go back and rectify this. And, and then on top of that, uh, sorry to layer the question, but how, how would we be able to, to go back? What would you recommend we do? Well, the baby has definitely been born. Uh, I think the pregnancy is definitely over on facial recognition or on artificial intelligence. But that doesn't mean that it's too late uh, to do some things. Um, one of the, the major issues we have is the could versus should world. A lot of these researchers that are doing this kind of work, uh, they come from university and they get A's based on can you do something? If you can push the limits, how far can you go? And unfortunately, they bring that mentality into the workplace, again, at the Microsofts, at the Amazons of the world, you name it. Um, We need to start asking ourselves if we should do certain things. And there are still so few facial recognition companies, both commercially and in the government space, that we can have a kind of communal conversation uh, and create some standards here. We're actually looking to sign on to some opt-in regulation ourselves about things that we want, we're not going to want to do or won't be able to do, folks who won't sell it to, who won't allow our technology to be used for lethal uses, for instance. So I think as these this conversation is evolving, we're going to find some ways that we can all get on the same page. Could you give us some examples of applications beyond unlocking your phone or uh, kind of entertainment on a cruise ship that we might use facial recognition technology, again, and also not by law enforcement? Sure, sure. The the obvious and most common one is Apple's flagship iPhone 10. You know, you use it to unlock your phone, but it's being used a variety of different ways as well. 
So there's one thing called anonymous facial recognition. This is facial recognition that doesn't know who you are, but knows other things about you, your age, gender, ethnicity, maybe even the emotions that you're feeling. Uh, these use cases include retailers. There'll be a camera in the front of the retail store. They want to understand the demographics of the folks that are coming in to see if their advertising is matching actual traffic flow. Uh, you see this amongst the movie studios. So they will show people a film. They'll pay them to watch a film. And they'll have cameras in the front reading the emotions of the people as they uh, watch the film to figure out the highs, the lows. Wow. Women didn't like this joke. Men didn't like that or what have you. So there's a, a variety of anonymous facial recognition use cases. And then there's, uh, you know, matching facial recognition use cases. Like in our case, uh, you know, there's been a huge problem with, with the cryptocurrency and blockchain and theft. Uh, we make sure that the person that is accepting or sending the funds really is the person that it's supposed to be. Uh, so the, all these use cases in banking and finance and blockchain are also really good examples of facial recognition. So obviously you run your company in a way that's very concerned with ethics. And you say in, on your company's website, unlike many face recognition companies today, we don't chase profits at the expense of human rights. You're out there advocating for better legislation. But do you ever worry that just by participating in the face recognition industry, by helping to build these databases, that you might be contributing to that future that you are concerned about, where we, where none of us can walk down the street without the feeling that we're being watched or, or surveilled uh, by this type of software? Yeah, and that's the difference between the government versus non-government use case. In our case, and in our customers' cases, we have to have a relationship with the person, with the customer. We've got to sign up for something. We've got to have your photo. Uh, you know, retailers don't know who everyone is until they decide to give them their information. Uh, and again, in the government's case, they pretty much know who everyone is as a part of their kind of mandate, right? And so as long as you stay on the kind of non-government side, you can live in a non-Orwellian world, uh, but the more work you do in the government side or companies that merge the two are starting to work in that kind of or Orwellian future, and uh, we're trying to fight against that. Brian Brackeen, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thank you for having me. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to Brian Brackeen. You can follow him on Twitter at Brian Brackeen. That's B-R-A-C-K-E-E-N. And thanks also to Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. You can follow her on Twitter at G Correa Cabrera. Thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. It's a big part of promoting our show, and we deeply appreciate it. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Danielle Hewitt here in Slate Studios in D.C. Also, thanks to Robert Kirby at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We'll see you next week.